0: This is New Books and Communications, and I'm Jeff Pooley. Uh, We're here today to talk to Michael Serrazio, who's author of Your Ad Here, The Cool Cell of Guerrilla Marketing, which is just out from NYU Press. Uh, Welcome to New Books and Communications, Michael, and uh, thanks for making the time to talk to me today.
1: Thanks very much for the opportunity to be here.
0: So yeah, uh, let me just say a word about the book. Um, It it is truly superb. uh, And if I can use a word that's at play in the book itself, it's, I think, authentically important. Um, The the book traces the mushrooming world of guerrilla marketing, and and here defined to include word of mouth, viral, advergaming, and really a host of other often hidden kinds of persuasion. And the book includes detailed uh, case studies and also wonderful interviews with marketers. Um, they're often hilarious and outrageous uh, and rife with contradiction. Um, and and the book's lasting contribution uh, long after the, the marketers have moved on to colonize some other space that hasn't yet been bathed in con- commercialism uh, is to describe and critique the underlying logic at work. Um, You trace, Michael, the ways in which guerrilla advertisers give up control, which is, in a way, handed over to consumers through, quote-unquote, authentic discovery or conversation and dialogue or amateurism or even uh, anti-marketing messages themselves, all of which serve, uh, paradoxically, you argue, to reinforce control, uh, reinforce commercialism, um, reinforce a consumerist's self Uh, You know, the consumer subject, you write, is strategically engaged to act without the sense of being acted upon in any way. Um, It's really brilliantly done, uh, uh, your exposure of what you call corporate ventriloquism. Uh, And and I suppose I should state out front that this interview is not uh, a stealth marketing ploy, (laughs) that my my enjoyment of the the book is not astroturfed (laughs) in any way. Um, And so uh, thanks again. I really enjoyed it. I, I think it deserves to be widely read and taught.
1: Well, thanks very much, Jeff. I really appreciate those kind words. It was uh, a really enjoyable project to uh, to tackle.
0: Great. So, I mean, maybe you could say a little bit about your background. I mean, what brought you into the field of media studies?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, so I come to the world of media studies... Uh, from uh, having been, a, I guess, a former uh, practitioner of it in a sense, um, I had uh, I had been a professional journalist before going back to grad school for my PhD. Um, I had done uh, my first master's degree uh, at Columbia Journalism School, um, and then had worked for a couple of years as a reporter for an alt weekly uh, down in Houston, Texas, uh, which was, you know, fantastic and um, you know, eye-opening and invigorating and, and kind of all the all the um, all the great uh, things that, that that journalism can can offer someone. I I realized as a reporter that my favorite part when I was uh, doing a story was when I got to call up a professor somewhere to sort of add some context and and meaning to the facts on the ground that I was reporting on. Um, I, it's called the the cosmic graph uh, in in journalism when you come to that that part in the story where the reporter gets to tell you what it all means. Uh, and I really enjoyed that, that part of the reporting so much and, and, you know, stories that were ultimately about ideas. Uh, so, uh, with that, you know, as, as kind of my driving, driving passion and, and also, um, a, a limited sense of, of, uh, nervousness about the precarious state of American journalism, this would have been back in 2005, um, you know, I decided to, to go back to uh, to grad school for a PhD and, and to try and uh, pursue, uh, you know, a career as a, as a professor. Um, I knew uh, very much that my my academic research, teaching, writing interests sort of sit at the nexus of, of media and culture. Um, and so, you know, that became, um, you know, that became the, uh, um, the, um, the focal point for a lot of my graduate studies um, and uh, some of the various uh, published journal articles that I've uh, done prior to the, uh, the release of this book.
0: Great, and you know, this book in itself, if I'm not mistaken, didn't grow out of a dissertation. Yeah, it did. And in a
1: much, uh, a much earlier uh, version of it, yeah, um, it. Uh, you know, I, I knew. You know, as far as the, the genesis of the idea for this book, um, I, I knew I wanted to do something um, about uh, cultural production. Um, you know, as my you know kind of media studies training sensitized me. Um, you know, I I, I realized increasingly. In that kind of um, three-part process of studying the media where you can sort of look at production, the texts themselves, the content itself, and then kind of the reception or effects side, I realized, you know, the the more my studies went on, the more interested I was in really the the kind of production or encoding um, part of that process, to borrow Stuart Hall's term. Uh, and so uh, I knew that was going to be the um, uh, the, the context of of um, of of a big project um, i didn 't know initially that it would be advertising. I thought it could have been you know um, cultural production as it relates to journalism, possibly you know television um, but ultimately, what I realized as I kind of thought through the different possibilities was that you know uh as advertising goes, so goes. The fate of so many of our uh, favorite, you know, pop culture and, and, and media forms and texts, and so, um, and seeing the profound changes that were happening between, you know, uh, you know, changes in technology, changes in you know, delivery of content, things like that. Seeing how advertising is, ref- you know, um, uh, reflecting and reacting to a lot of those changes became a way to study cultural production in a lot of other sectors. So. Uh, parts of the book do look at how you know advertising and journalism commingle in this new environment. Parts of the book look at how you know advertising and um, you know film or pop you know pop music intermingle. Um, parts of it look at you know how advertising and and sort of social networks and new media intermingle. And so you know advertising really wound up becoming the the sort of um, um, the, the way in which I was able to to look at a lot of these other facets of cultural production through a really interesting historical moment um, where technology is changing and the industry is trying to catch up uh, to that. So that was sort of, uh, I guess, the kind of genesis uh, of the, uh, the book's idea.
0: And I m- imagine that the dissertation doesn't resemble too closely the book that NYU Press just published. And maybe you could just say something about that perhaps painful uh, or, or maybe pleasurable uh, process of transforming your dissertation.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if only it was, uh, (laughs) it was, it was that easy to uh, just send off the disc. No, it was, um, you know, the big uh, and, and the reviewers, uh, the anonymous reviewers who, who wound up, um, you know, working on the, the manuscript and reviewing it, uh, provided just incredibly thorough, um, helpful feedback, um, particularly helping me refine the, the kind of theoretical front end of the, um, of the, of the book. Um, they, they provided great insight in terms of, um, you know, uh, how to, uh, make some of my uses of Foucault work better, uh, you know, some of my uses of Gramsci. Uh, and, and I think that they added uh, an incredible uh, array of, of really helpful questions uh, to try and, you know, tease out exactly what it was I wanted to say about a lot of these um, trends and patterns that, you know, I, I think I come at, at them with, uh, you know, certainly, a, a hopefully a healthy degree of skepticism, but at the same time, you know, something of, you know, ambivalence. Um, I think, you know, readers will hopefully um, not see this necessarily as a, as a, as a kind of, um, Jeremiah or, or screed, um, but, um, you know, a a, 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 hopefully a kind of, um, measured critique of, um, of this, of this new advertising phenomenon. So, the, you know, the feedback that I was able to get in those formative stages of the manuscript was just really incredibly helpful to help really convert it, uh, a long way from where it had been when I left grad school.
0: Well, great. Um, you know, and, and, even the title itself kind of invites, uh, some definitional work. I mean, I wonder if you might describe to listeners what the phrase cool sell means in sure. this context and also, uh, guerrilla marketing itself, which, sure. uh, which you define broadly. So yes. why don't you give us that?
1: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, those two terms, uh, kind of act as really key, um, theoretical vehicles for a lot of the book. Um, I'll start with the, the, the second one, guerrilla marketing. Um, You know, guerrilla marketing is really um, my central core argument of the book. And that's, you know, if I could sort of summarize it succinctly, I would say that um, increasingly a lot of the new advertising experiments, innovations and tactics we're seeing resemble metaphorically. The, you know, a kind of guerrilla warfare strategy for reaching consumers. So if we think of conventional warfare, right, it was all about, uh, you know, the history, of, the history of warfare is really about, you know, the kind of the history of, of an evolution of warfare. And uh, if, you know, historically, centuries ago, it was about armies lining up with very clear uniforms on very clear battlefields. Where everything was sort of circumscribed, well-defined, contained, and, you know, the two, ba- the two armies would skirmish it out. Um, to me, I see that same metaphor lending itself to a lot of um, the history of traditional advertising, right? Your commercials lined up in very clear spots, at, you know, 30 spots the commercial break on TV. The, um, you know, uh, the, the uh, advertising content in newspapers or magazines was very clearly separated from the editorial content. Um, you know, it, you know uh, banners on a web page would, would kind of run to the side of all this, right? And um, so if that's the kind of conventional warfare equivalent for trying to reach audiences and consumers' attention spans, what I see happening when we look at um, the increase in product placement, the rise of buzz marketing, some of the social media strategies, um, and some of the kind of alt culture uh, uh, kind of outdoor strategies is really the, the, the guerrilla uh, warfare innovation. It's about um, it's about putting content, uh, putting advertising content in non-traditional spaces so that it doesn't look like advertising. Why does it not want to look like advertising? Because we don't want to look at advertising as consumers and audiences. We, uh, we avoid it. We skip it. We zap it. We T.O. it out. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that that logic is, is definitely not lost on advertisers themselves And so there's a fundamental, I find, and especially as I went through and did a lot of these interviews, a fundamental self-effacement about the project of advertising when you talk to marketers. Um, You know, they don't want their content to look like advertising because audiences will ignore it. Um, So that becomes the kind of, you know, central abiding metaphor. and, And as I wound up reading... Che Guevara's uh textbook for uh you know guerrilla warfare it was just interesting how many parallels there were between uh warfare and and marketing and you hear that in the ad world as well I mean it comes down to the f- you can even boil it down to the fundamental unit of both sales and war, which is the campaign. Uh, so actually, when you wind up looking at sort of advertising speak, there's already a lot of militarized metaphors being, you know, bounced around. But, um, you know, when I, when I looked at Che Guevara's um, sort of theories of warfare, it wound up sounding a lot like what I was hearing in these new ad strategies. So that's part of the, the title. The other part of the title, um, The Cool Cell, um, is a, uh, you know, somewhat uh, coy, uh, playful uh, adoption of um, Marshall McLuhan's terms, uh, hot and cold media. Um, so uh, uh, th- these would have come out of, um, you know, his, his book from back in the, the 60s, um, Understanding Media. Uh, and, you know, so if we think of, uh, you know, hot media are basically, uh, you know, high definition, hot, you know, very, very low engagements expected out of audiences, cool media are a little bit lower in resolution and, and higher in audience participation, um, you know, I kind of appropriate those terms to talk about the hot sell being this kind of traditional over-the-top sort of Times Square advertisements being blared in your face, Billy Mays forcing the infomercial down your throat, uh, you know, very kind of obvious um, uh, overt uh, strategy of reaching consumers where, you know, there's not much there's not much the consumer is um, interpolated or addressed to do other than just you know you know uh, 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 you know just acquiesce and, and, and sort of be passive. It, you know the hot sell addressed consumers in a way that expected them to be a little bit more passive. The cool sell. By contrast, I argue uh, anticipates some interactivity, some some freedom on the part of the consumer, some some um, you know uh, something where, whereby they they figure it out for themselves in, in ways small and large, um, and so that was you know just I, I found uh, you know uh, McLuhan's uh, hot and cold media a useful way of really looking at this because when you look at the ad industry, there's a big shift happening from impressions being the crucible by which you determine whether a campaign is effective that would you know been the kind of traditional way you define whether you're getting the message across to nowadays you know engagement is just the buzz, buzzword du jour and uh you know that speaks to uh an ad industry that is thinking about and addressing the consumer uh in a very different uh sort of more actively uh you know in, in inciting way so you know, those are the kind of two, two terms that sort of weave themselves throughout the, the book and the different case studies
0: that I look at. Well, that's perfect. And, you know, it segues really well into a question I have about what I think is perhaps the book's main theme, um, and, and the way that the cool cell, I mean, ironically, because of its disinterested, hands-off, um, even dissident attitude that you just described, you, you know, you say is a kind of power or governance. Um, you're drawing, as you already mentioned, on Antonio Gramsci and Michel Foucault to make uh, this paradoxical argument that the guerrilla marketers' embrace of agency for the consumer, uh, dissent and flexibility, works to keep that kind of quote unquote empowered consumer governed. Yeah, uh, power through freedom, as you put it, uh, at some point in the book. And can you explain what you mean by this uh, strange seeming idea?
1: Yeah, it is paradoxical for sure. Um, because and, and it's and it's paradoxical also. Uh, as it plays out in the in the discourse and practices of, of advertisers themselves, um, you know this is a you know this is a group uh, you know advertisers um, whose fundamental task at the end of the day is to control the consumer is to you know deliver uh you know d- deliver the consumer to clients and and in a in a in a in a in a, a, um, a state of mind that makes them receptive to purchasing their products. Um, so the idea that you know, um, advertisers would, would be embracing this sort of notion of um, you know, freedom and, and, and producing disinterested content um, is very ironic because this, this goes against fundamentally what they get paid for. The advertisers you know, don't get paid at the end of the day. For creating freedom on behalf of consumers, no, they they ultimately need to uh, create some sort of cultural funnel that will, you know, angle them toward, uh, you know, buying products and and you know, selling widgets or whatever. Particularly, I found Foucault extremely um, useful, and and I will, you know, for sure uh, a uh, uh, caveat this by saying that I'm by no means a, you know, an expert on all of Foucault's work and, and, uh, it can be, uh, certainly, and, and, and was for me, a a challenge to, to think through and, and work through. Um, but I found, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, his, some of his, his later writings on governmentality, um, a really effective way of thinking about how you, um, you could sort of shepherd a subject toward, uh, desired ends. Um, for you know, for for most of, um, as I understand it, most of you know how you know, Foucault has been used and and, uh, and and applied and advanced over the years. Is it tends to be more of the kind of the self administering to the self, the self governing the self. Um, but I found you know that, that that the same sort of language that he uses to describe this exercise of power, where you're where you're you know trying to create this field of possibilities that. that um, you know, that will structure the possible field of action of the subject, was a really, you know, effective way of, of thinking about what these, these new advertisers are trying to do, thanks to the tools, you know, the technological advances that they've been afforded and some of the um, the new cultural fronts that they're opening up to be able to speak to consumers, um, and so that just became you know a way of of looking at and thinking about this this power through uh, freedom uh, theme and and some of the other um, themes that kind of weave themselves um, throughout the book. Um, you know the 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 idea that you know um, we don't like as audiences or as consumers and audiences to feel like something has been chosen for us. You know uh, we, we want to feel like you know, the decision was ours, and and and, and that's what advertisers are, are very much trying to play to. They don't want to overstep on on our sense of agency. And so there's a very sort of delicate dance that plays out um, that's paradoxical and contradictory, but, but truly fascinating to see how, um, you know, advertisers try to address um, consumers in this way, and particularly, I should add, youth consumers. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the book is about strategies for campaigns that are chasing after teens and young adults. And there's, you know, different interesting reasons and theories for why this particular demographic, this particular psychographic, responds especially well, or especially poorly, to, uh, you know, the hot cell and and, and perhaps responds more effectively to this cool cell idea. Uh, But it really, you know, it really is kind of, um, you know, I mean, it is about sort of power through freedom and and sort of if you're shifting from impressions, I mean, an impression is simply, you know, a a kind of a a passive audience, just, you know, some things being impressed upon them. Engagement suggests that they're, you know, um, leaning forward and and, and engaging with it in a way that, that, you know, embraces their sense of freedom. So it's a You know, it's just a theme that wound up, uh, you know, kind of uh, weaving throughout the book.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the best things about the book is the many, many interviews you did with marketers of different kinds. And, you know, the way that they would engage in really quite revealing sort of verbal gymnastics, uh, uh, sort of trying to, you know, thread the difference between the empowering language on the one hand, and also the fact that they are in the business of delivering consumers, uh, to purchasers, uh, to purchase yeah. products and, you know, that fundamental fact, and ultimately they're in the persuasion business. So, yeah. um, it's re- you know, it's really quite wonderful to, to, to read them, um, square that circle. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, getting into the body of the book, you, uh, talk about, something related to what you just discussed, which is ambient governance, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful phrase. Um, And you're developing that idea in the body of the book in a chapter looking at product placement and also things like adver gaming. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe you could spell out what you mean by ambient governance with an example that you discussed, and I think some listeners will know of at least, um, America's Army.
1: Mm, Sure, absolutely. Um, So, you know, I I will uh, uh, preface this by saying that, um, you know, a lot of folks in the ad industry would – not use guerrilla marketing to encompass all of the different uh, 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 case studies that I look at. I mean, if, if you know, if, if uh, you know, if a marketer picked up this book, and I hope that one or two do, uh, and you know, and, and, and read it, they would be surprised that I was including you know something like product placements under the umbrella of guerrilla marketing. But to me, it fits really well with uh, you know to go back to that theme of advertising creeping into spaces that it has not historically occupied. You know, that being said, I do in 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 that initial in that second chapter um, try to uh, illuminate how there there is a precedence for branded content showing up, and there is a precedence for um, product placements. Now, uh, the explosion of it over the past decades suggests that it's something is new here. I mean, it's not just what they've always been doing. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, soap operas are named that way because they were initially, you know, financed by detergent companies back in the heyday of, you know, radio and television. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so ambient governance, um, really kind of tries to get at, um, the, the central tension as, uh, it plays itself out in product placement and branded content. And that is how do you create pop culture, that sells products that doesn't seem like it's trying to sell products. Um, And and, and that, you know, know, speaks to um, uh, this this challenge, this conundrum that advertisers have in trying to work through these third-party intermediaries, right? Whether it be, um, you know, the director and writers on a James Bond film uh, or, or a TV show, um, whether it be um, pop music artists who we're seeing are increasingly embedding in their lyrics and their music videos um, sponsored content, whether uh, we're seeing more and more in, in really fascinating ways um, that ambient governance being embedded in um, journalistic content. Um, it's been very fascinating to study, um, especially in the past year or two, the rise of a lot of this sponsored content in really not just upstarts like Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, but um, you know places like the Atlantic and the Washington Post that are really in forms that are, are really starting to rely upon branded content um, in a very kind of guerrilla marketing type way. Mm. Um, the um, the particular example that that I find especially illuminating is um, is is uh, America's Army. Um, it's a um, very interesting case study. So the U.S. military had had a lot of difficulty uh, or, you know, it revealed it, you know, t- to me in the interview, had, 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 had talked about, uh, you know, having a lot of difficulty really speaking to the millennial youth. Um, they, you know, they, they, you know, parroted a lot of the, um, my inter- you know, my, my um, uh, interviewee uh, sort of parroted the, the typical line that, you know, you know, uh, high school kids, you know, you can't get to them through the 30-second TV commercial. How do we reach these kids? How do we speak to them in a, in a way that seems authentic? And so what they did was they developed um, this uh, this video game that was a free download. It's called America's Army. It's basically like a first-person shooter game. And, uh, and, and really, it, it's a very emblematic shift because, to me, the classic Army marketing strategy is Uncle Sam with his, you know, finger pointed at the... Uh, pointed at the uh, viewer of a a poster or an advertisement, you know, saying, I want you. And that's very much, that's a very sort of hard sell uh, kind of archetype. But this America's Army game, it's never really trying to sell you anything. And and that was what emerged in my interviews with um, the colonel who developed this game. You know, it's never, they're, they're not trying to, uh, you know, obviously, uh, sell you on the army. They're not trying to sort of force the army down your throat if you're a gamer. Hopefully, you just you know get into the game. You, you learn the protocols. You learn the values, um, and it winds up sort of um, cultivating that brand identity in your mind. And 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 he really, you know, I mean, it sort of frames really nicely um, the you know the the advert gaming um, strategy, which is very much about interactivity about uh, you know um, you know casual subtle uh, you know sort of message I mean the the message join the army is at once everywhere and nowhere in a video game like America's army and so it's a it's a, it's a really kind of classic example of it sort of it sort of exists in the ambience of the game itself so that's sort of where's where that uh, ambient governance idea came from
0: yeah that's great uh, you know and one of the pleasures of reading the book was exposure to new terms like Avergaming, I suppose, is not that new. Mm -hmm. But you you also talk about guerrilla marketing in uh, the purest sense, I suppose, in a chapter that touches on what the industry apparently sometimes calls Um, Mm alt-outdoors. Yeah, and the idea here is to use sometimes graffiti or brandalism, as it it Mm -hmm. can be called, or Mm -hmm. um, radical political tropes, or at least the form of those tropes uh, um, and the antics of culture jamming activists like uh, the Adbusters guys and others like the yes men. Uh, so, so, you know, it's a fascinating chapter that talks about how resistance in this case, kind of openly anti-marketing resistance finds its way back into the Naomi Klein quoting uh, marketer's <laughs> quiver. Um, so perhaps you could talk about this. Uh, you know, you, t- you use the example of PBR or some other example. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This was a really interesting um, chapter to work on. this and, and, and that particular chapter that sort of looks at these alt-culture sort of um, strategies of graffiti or branded flash mobs, I mean, that really is what the industry considers, um, in a very limited sense, guerrilla marketing. So if you were to ask an advertiser about guerrilla marketing, it would really be those types of strategies that they would assume that you were talking about. Um, and it was interesting to trace all of the parallels that showed up between um, a lot of the uh, both theories and practices of culture jammers, uh, you know, um, uh, th- throughout the you know '90s and, and thereafter, um, and, and see how those mapped onto um, some of the strategies of uh, of, of guerrilla marketing in this sense. Um, a- as you mentioned, I think the, um, the 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 PBR example is a really interesting one um, because uh, you know PBR had, had managed to cultivate uh about so about 10 years ago uh you know pbr wound up just gaining this sort of hipster cachet uh you know and, and it, it really came as something of a surprise to the company as, as i understand it <laughs> uh and so they, they brought in some brand consultants to sort of figure out like Okay, we thought we were marketing to this kind of blue-collar old man demographic, but turns out we're we're doing really well in Portland and, and Williamsburg and and you know, with sort of um you know, sort of punk subcultures with sort of you know, bicycle messenger subcultures. And how did this you know, how, how not just how did this happen, but really how do we wind up cultivating that momentum? And what was really interesting to, to hear and, and read about um what the brand consultants did on this is they 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 really um you know, they they really tried to um uh, avoid, uh, you know, uh, 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 marketing PBR to this demographic that was embracing it. Um, you know, the, the the consultant on it said that. He, you know, he was trying to allow these subcultures to choose PBR rather than having the brand chosen for them. So for example, if, if PBR was, you know, gonna sponsor a bike messenger race, they wouldn't hang banners all over the place, you know, blaring PBR, you know, uh uh, you know, in in, in sixty-four point fonts. You know, they they would try and keep it very casual. They would even serve, as I understand it, you know, competing beer brands, right? And so again, this kind of betrays um, a, a new way of addressing a very jaded, cynical consumer um, for something like uh, um, PBR, um, and, and it's you know it really uh, speaks to um, it speaks to this kind of you know resistance alt culture strategy. Uh, another great example that came out of this was um, one of the most sort of famous. Um, public uh, service campaigns in the past 10 or 15 years and that would be the truth anti-smoking campaign mm. um, which uh, here again targeted a very sort of cynical at-risk uh, uh, teen target for its messages to try and you know get them to, to not smoke or to stop smoking um, and they took a very uh, explicit um, uh, kind of culture jamming approach to it where they were um, trying to prank the ad industry uh, as a way of um, as, as a way of getting teens to, to realize that the ad Industry was tricking them into thinking that smoking is cool, um, and the, and the, um, the, um, the uh, uh, ad agency, uh, Crispin Porter Bugusky down in Miami, that sort of handled this. Uh, it was without a doubt probably the, the you know one of the biggest and, and maybe the top agency of the last ten years as far as these innovations go. And so, you know, <clears throat> this chapter was kind of all about looking at how you um, how you try to cultivate cool in this new cultural landscape. Um, how you, um, you know, what you draw upon, what different aesthetics and practices you draw upon, whether it be graffiti and stickers like something, you know, Banksy or um, Shepard Fairey might create or, um, uh, you know, branded flash mobs uh, more recently than that. Um, and, and really here here again, all of these examples are, are sort of very guerrilla in nature, right? They're not, they avoid seeming like advertising at all costs because the assumption is, is that Consumers can't be convinced by something that looks like traditional advertising, particularly the consumers that they're chasing after here, um, hipsters and and teens who might smoke. Um, So, yeah, this was a, you know, this was sort of a chapter that highlighted all of those different strategies.
0: And, you know, the same point um, gets made in the the next couple of chapters, but without perhaps the sort of hip resistant edge with word of mouth marketing and Mm -hmm. and peer to peer marketing or buzz Mm -hmm. marketing. Um, uh, you even call it, I think, borrowing from an industry rep, a uh, real life product placement. Yeah, 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 it's a great <laughs> uh, phrase. It is. So, so, and, and it seemed like you even signed up to serve as a kind of astroturf shill um, in the name of research uh, uh, for one of these firms. Um, I so-
1: did, I did, and they didn't. They never sent me any fun stuff. I was totally hoping to score some swag from them, and uh, I think I just didn't. Uh, I didn't meet their demographic uh, desires on whatever campaigns they were running. Yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, um, when you, when you talk to advertisers, the conventional wisdom, and I think it's, you know, been proven out by research is that by far the best advertisement is a friend's recommendation. I mean, by, by far and away, the sort of most convincing way that you can get people to buy your stuff is just, is to have their friends say that it's great. Um, and, um... This is uh, something that has both been around for a long time and has also increased tremendously in recent years. Um, It was fascinating to go back and look at some of the the history of early PR, looking at some of the work of Edward Bernays, who is just a a really fascinating um, figure, the the kind of father of uh, public relations, um, and some of the techniques that that he used um, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, where, you know, he worked on behalf of the Bacon brand and, in order to get you know um, you know get more bacon sold, he wound up convincing a bunch of physicians to to sort of recommend it to their patients, um, and you can trace that through you know in various forms and instantiations throughout the 20th century. But really, buzz marketing took off really in this past 10, 10 years or so, um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is structural; it's a lot easier to run word of mouth campaigns where you're sending out um samples of stuff and you're getting back feedback on how these um products are being talked up with friends once you have uh you know a, a system like the internet to kind of facilitate that communication very easily um and also you know we're we're living you know we're living through a, a you know a, a something of a um um a populist turn in terms of uh who creates the media that we consume uh, and increasingly you know we're consuming a lot more of our sort of friends social media and so that Became a reason for marketers to investigate more and more. How do I? How do I um, s- stimulate what has otherwise been um, spontaneous uh, for decades with regards to word of mouth recommendations? How do I organize something that had been otherwise organic? Um, and so you have you have companies like Buzz Agents. Uh, you know which which has you know a half a million um, sort of uh, buzz agents and and sort of volunteers that um, you know they 'd get free products talk them up with friends, and then you know report back to the company on that on that dialogue um, uh, you know one of my other interviews, as you mentioned um, conducts similar type of thing that he called real life product placement, which is, you know, just, uh, one of those, when you're, when you're doing an interview and you hear <laughs> something like that come up, it's just like, it's great, you know, as a former uh,
0: journalist, especially. You oh, realize, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, that's, in a, you know, another thing where it's about trying to sort of, um, insinuate and you know even script, although there'll be some disagreements on you know how much it's scripted script uh, you know some of these products into everyday uh, life with folks um, and so you know this has been this has been a source of growth and this uh, you know raises a lot of interesting questions about uh, the authenticity of our interactions with friends and and that's what makes them that you know that's what makes that space so fertile to marketers I mean, um, authenticity is the central preoccupation, in, in my opinion, of marketers nowadays because their fundamental task is the opposite of it. I mean, their fundamental task mm-hmm. is contrivance, and so that's why they're obsessed with authentic- authenticity. And you know, I don't, I don't blame them because that's you know, sort of what they need to, to do in order to achieve that, that kind of systemic goal. Um, but it's, it's something that we're, you know, seeing more and more of, uh, you know, showing up, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, growth and ad spending toward those projects in the industry.
0: Right. So, so, you know, you, you kind of hit on the the topic of the importance of not seeming inauthentic of kind of, coming across as spontaneous even if there's a calculation underneath. And, mm-hmm. and I think you get at this really well when you you talk in, in this chapter about the what you call the dilemma of disclosure, because the, there's apparently a word of mouth marketing association or something close to that 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 mm-hmm. has made it a kind of ethical mandate to disclose word of mouth campaigns about working for a client. And and yet, you know, I mean maybe you could speak to the fact that were this Uh, ethical guideline followed religiously, what would the uh, impact be on the entire campaign itself?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting question um, because, um, as you say, uh, this Word of Mouth Marketing Association was founded maybe five or ten years ago now um, in response to a lot of the industry growth in this area. Um, And it it lays out this very sort of ethical standard. And and a lot of um, the major companies uh, that um, operate in this space uh, do proclaim very loudly and repeatedly that they follow it, that, um, disclosure needs to take place. So if you get, you know, I don't know, some free phone or something from a company and you are trying it out and talking it up with friends, they expect you to say, you know, this is, uh, you know, product that was brought to me by, you know, buzz agent or whatever company brought it to, you know, and, uh, that's, that's why I got it. And this is what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I believe, and I, and, I, and I, you know, and you examine their, you know, the the the, uh, the various buzz companies materials, and they make it very clear to agents. Um, and I believe that they, you know, that that they, you know, they are sort of officially saying that this is what we want to do. But it just strikes me as odd because part of why part of why word of mouth marketing is touted as so effective is because it doesn't look like marketing. So. Right. If you're having this sort of, um, you know, this sort of stilted caveat that you'd expect your buzz agents to introduce into their conversations with friends, I mean, it just creates, first of all, awkwardness. I, I mean, I just think myself, if if I had gotten, you know, uh, so, some some free swag, you know, when I was working on behalf, you know, when I when I signed up for a buzz agent, you know, would I have would I have felt compelled to, you know, to introduce that disclosure into my conversations, or would I just let it slide? I don't know if I'm being honest. I would probably just let it slide, and I wonder how many people, you know, share the same uh, share the same feeling. And I, and and I wonder if, in its heart of hearts, these buzz agent companies, you know, really, really do want that disclosure to take place because what they sell as as an effective competitor to traditional advertising is the fact that it doesn't, you know, look like traditional advertising. And um, you know, I, I know that there's you know legal things here and you know uh, you know factors like that, but um, but it's just a very uh, curious, uh, conundrum because it would seem to denaturalize, uh, something that's otherwise very natural, which is just, you know, uh, chatting with friends and whatnot. And, um, you know, there again is, is the fundamental task of advertising, which is, you know, um, you know, contrivance and how do you work that contrivance into our everyday lives, whether it be, you know, pop culture or the conversations with friends, it, it becomes a challenging thing to suss out.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that's really clear in the book and you know as with the the rest of the the book you're you're aiming to I mean show basically how certain kinds of half half real agency are harnessed to sell stuff right and mm. sort of to bypass the man in order to stuff his pockets basically mm. you know? mm. and and you know one of the things I really like about these two chapters is that you're puzzling over the fact that so many of us are willing to volunteer for free, basically, as mm-hmm. brand ambassadors and buzz agents. Um, and and yet, you know, you avoid the simplistic notion that we're all kind of duped, all of us who are uh, signing up for buzz agent and, and, and so on. And instead, you know, you refer to a wider culture of what you're calling social capitalism that, that makes buzz agentry almost a natural step for a populist that's already self-branding on Facebook and elsewhere. Yeah, I I just thought, you know, if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was the central sort of question that I puzzled over as I was sort of working through this material is, is the fact that, you know, the people who are participating in this, you know, they might be shows, but they're not dupes, you know, and so and they're not required by any means. I mean, they're they're not getting paid for this, but they're, you know, they're maybe getting free samples. So why why do we you know, why would we participate in this? Why do buzz agents go in for this? And it's not, you know, this this book is very clearly, as I said from the start, a, a an encoding study, not a decoding study. I'm not looking at sort of audiences reception and, and, and you know, buzz agents themselves, why they do this. But to me, it speaks to the fact that these companies um, can initiate these sort of practices would seem to suggest that we're already comfortable with um, defining ourselves through consumer goods. And because consumerism plays such a large part in our lives, that maybe part of it is, you know, part of the appeal for people who take part in this is being kind of in the know on, um, you know, new products and new fads and new trends as they come out. And that's, that's partly what these buzz agent companies sell to their volunteers is that you will be in the know and that you will have, you know, you will be able to drive a kind of social capital, uh, and you're being asked to participate because they assume you have social capital because you have, you know, a thousand friends on Facebook who, you know, like and comment on your statuses regularly. And so, um, you know, all of that sort of contributes, you know, to, um, to to this notion of you know, and 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 you've written about this, and a lot, a lot of you know, very smart people have written about this. Is you know, the, the self as a brand, right? And so, um, you know, once once you kind of consider yourself uh, more and more along those lines, and, and once um, once it doesn't become a, a problem to sort of define yourself in those ways, then you know, then working and aligning yourself with you know, brands in the in the social space is, is not that strange. And, and, you know, I mean, even people who don't, you know, necessarily uh, sign up to be buzz agents probably recognize, I think, some to some degree, this this social capitalism that weaves its way into our lives and our interactions in, in these spaces. And so, um, you know, I, it's, 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 again, it speaks to some of that ambivalence that I have about a lot of this stuff, which is to say that, you know, these are not mindless sort of dupes in a kind of, you know, Frankfurt School sense who are taking part in this, you know, who are not, or complicit in some, you know, uh, nefarious culture industries, you know, machinations. This is, you know, everyday folks um, who, you know, maybe just think this is they're going to be the first one on their block to, to, you know, to know about a new product, and, and that is probably understandably appealing in, in modern life.
0: Okay, good, and you know that does really segue well into that that next chapter where you're talking about strategies that involve, you know, participation basically from the mm-hmm. consumer, and and I guess you'd say. Uh, viral social media campaigns would fall fall into this Mm -hmm. and and but also you know you talk about in this chapter crowdsourced advertising like Doritos has done um, and other you know tactics in which the consumer is basically enlisted as the laborer in at least spreading but sometimes even generating the material and um, as you talk about you know the the consumer's amateur authenticity is what's key right um Mm. And uh, so I thought maybe you could talk about either this great Burger King subservient chicken example or, mm-hmm. the, or Ford Fiesta or something else um, in terms yeah. of talking about free labor, which is sort of packaged as democratic participation.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So partly what this um, this fifth chapter in the book is about is is about um, these kind of different crowdsourced or consumer generating marketing examples. Um, and these really hinge, uh, as you say, on the um, the credibility of the amateur. I mean, the amateur, um, you know, over the past ten or ten or fifteen years, uh, I guess ten years or so of, of sort of Web 2.0 uh, networked life, um, the amateur has been you know venerated throughout um, in in a lot of you know powerful ways. I mean, it's the amateur who populates our Facebook um, you know status uh, you know our news feeds every day. It's the amateur who populates the you know, incredible amount of content that's put on YouTube. I mean, the amateur really holds a very moral place um, in, in, uh, in modern you know pop culture, media culture life. And so this is precise. I mean, the fact that the amateur has credibility in contrast to the professional, which is a really interesting distinction there that I sort of try to play with. The fact that the amateur has credibility is, is of course, exactly where the, the advertiser wants to go. The fact that the amateur is authentic is, of course, exactly where the, the advertiser wants to go. Um, and, and And things that go viral um, have that same sort of sheen of authenticity, right that, mm-hmm. and, and anytime something goes viral, it has a kind of populist ethos about it. It's a kind of uh, oh, you know the, the, you know something goes viral, it's not because it was put on you know a thousand screens nationwide you know on a particular Friday. It's, you know something goes viral, it's not because an advertiser paid. You know, uh, millions of dollars to have it, you know, um, bombarded on a on a Super Bowl ad. If something goes viral, it sort of rises up from the people. There's a very kind of populist, uh, democratic ethos informing this. Um, and so, something like the, the Ford Fiesta campaign uh, that Ford ran, I think, is really instructive in this example. Uh, they had a new, you know, uh, subcompact car that they were hoping to roll out, and rather than do a, a very sort of traditional mass media buy. Um, marketing strategy. What they did instead is um, they wound up uh, having a contest, um, and you know, again, so many sort of amateur media things are all about contests. Uh, they, they had a contest where they invited participants to sort of prove themselves to be uh, social media butterflies, right? So you applied, and if you if you if you had enough followers. On you know this was a couple years ago, so followers on MySpace and and YouTube and whatnot, um, and you know Twitter followers, then you were granted you know one of I think a hundred you know Ford Fiesta sort of buzz agents, and and basically they got a free car for a year, they got uh, you know free gas, insurance, whatnot, and all they had to do was post content once a month around uh, different themes, you know adventure, sort of social you know activism stuff like that. Um and this really was you know a way of um of Ford kind of um you know riding on the credibility of these these amateurs and these um you know, social media butterflies um and, and really trying to um you know really trying to work through uh you know their brand strategy in in, in kind of these to these authentic intermediaries and their web two productivity. Um and so that was you know <clears throat> this was another example of Ford trying to reach millennials. Um uh, you know, as I say, a lot of the examples from the book are really sort of oriented toward younger younger audiences and younger consumer demographics. Um, and so this, you know, became became one example from the chapter. Another example that you, you mentioned is the, um, uh, is, is what is considered probably the first viral, uh, you know, sensation of, of advertising, uh, you know, in, of the 21st century, and that would be the, the Burger King's subservient chicken. Uh, about seven years ago, um, Burger King working with Crispin Porter, Porter burgusky sort of famous famous ad, ad agency from the past decade, um, created this very strange website where you where you you know when you clicked on it or you went to it, um, all it had was a chicken in a room, like a kind of a dingy looking sort of living room, and it had a little um, field that you could enter in. Um, uh, uh, commands for the chicken to do, uh, you know, one of a host of 300 or 400, uh, different commands, the chicken would perform those actions. Um, and this was part of, you know, Burger King's strategy to sell to, um, I think as they, as, uh, my interviewee told me to sort of sell to like stone teens, basically, <laughs> just get on the internet and want to look for like wacky stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, this became uh, a huge um, viral success. I mean, I mean, the you know the numbers are in the book as far as uh, you know how, how many times this this URL was forwarded and how you know how, how much of an impact it made in terms of website visitors, stuff like that. Um, and you know, it, it's it's really interesting because there's nothing about that um, website that directly, uh, explicitly, obliquely connects to Burger King. Um, and, and it's just sort of a, a way of sort of building a viral buzz um, about it. And, and, you know, people have debated about whether or not it actually sold, you know, chicken sandwiches or not. That's, that's kind of another separate question. But um, it very much was about trying to work itself into, um, into a, an online ad space that didn't appear uh, to, to be pushing a cheeseburger onto you.
0: Right, which is, in a way, encapsulates the whole point of what you're calling guerrilla marketing here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, since we're running out of time, I'm curious about whether you think there are implications for, you know, the the field itself. I mean, there's this long tradition going back at least to uh, personal influence in 1955 Mm -hmm. through some audience studies in the 80s and 90s and on through Henry Jenkins and others today that, that plays up audience agency and, and freedom vis-a-vis the media. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you're talking about and quoting marketers making some of these same claims, mm. uh, but your story overall complicates it. And so I'm just wondering uh, how, how you might articulate that.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, it's actually one that... Um... Uh, at this point, I, I don't think I actually have a sort of, um, a, a, you know, d- definitive uh, a, a statement about because um, because you're correct. I mean, there have been, a, a, you know, a, a long history in media studies of, of um, fantastic, uh, you know, s- studies of how creative consumers and audiences can be, um, you know, just just how, uh, you know, sort of active they can be in the process of making meaning out of media texts and, um, And, and, you know, um, what this book, I think, tries to do is is by no means to invalidate uh, any of those claims or findings, um, but rather to simply look at how, um, you know, the culture industries are trying to um, work with a lot of those same trends and and think through um, a a lot of those same patterns. Um, Because, you know, it struck me as I was sort of doing the, the, you know, the kind of background research on this topic and sort of seeing that, you know, not a lot had been, you know, sort of done yet, um, looking at these, uh, phenomenon is that, um, you know, um, there's a, a lot to be, uh, you know, learned and, and explored with regard to cultural producers and, and how they, um, think about audiences and, and, and how they think about the agency of, of audiences and, and trying to, to program to that agency. Um, and I know that part of the reason why you know a lot of this doesn't get done is because it's a, it's a challenge of access, um, but uh, you know I think that um, what we see uh, happening at least in the advertising world and I think it'll spill over you know it has spilled over into other um, media culture industries uh, is that they are catering to those um, you know to those um, consumer trends and, and audience patterns, and um, the more we can kind of keep an eye on how um, the advertising industry is dealing with that, the, the better we can understand this sort of very complex portrait of, um, of, of where the audience and the consumer sits in, in sort of modern day media culture. Um, because as I say, this is, you know, even, even though I spend all my time uh, <clears throat> with the tricksters in this book, with the, you know, the persuaders, uh, I'm by no means arguing that, you know, um, audiences are, are, are being, um, you know, sort of duped in a superficial sense. Um, rather, I, I'm, I think what I'm trying to argue is that because the process of persuasion has become so complex and, and complicated and requiring nuance nowadays, um, that very much the, the, the audience as active, sophisticated, creative is, is a truth. And, and that's mm-hmm. partly what cues a lot of these, um, similarly sophisticated, clever, uh, you know, underhanded, if you know, you want to call it that, or perhaps just, um, um sly uh uh marketing strategies.
0: Right. I mean that really does come through as a thread throughout the entire book just that the agency that advertisers and marketers are playing to is frankly as they admit uh, maybe even overemphasize uh, mm. is real and mm. uh and and they are kind of hitching themselves to that agency in subtle ways. Uh, mm. So so good. I mean uh, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you think is particularly important. I mean, it's such a rich book and we really had to gloss through it fast. Um, but is there anything that you wanted to highlight?
1: No, I mean, I, I thank you again for the really kind words and opportunity to talk, um, on, on this series. Um, you know, I think, I think one thing, and it's a sort of very small note in the book, and I I mentioned it a little bit earlier is going forward, it will be really interesting to see how this winds up impacting um, journalism. Um, and, and I, Mm -hmm. And I and I look at all this as someone who still, in some ways, fundamentally identifies um, as a journalist as much as a, a scholar, and um, and 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 looks with great trepidation on what's happened to the journal, you know, to the to the world of news over the past five or seven years, um, and the degree to which um, guerrilla marketing will seep into influence journalism in different ways. Um, the uh, the notion of a separation of church and state between editorial and advertising. Um, was, of course, uh, you know, a historical artifact that didn't always exist, but it may well turn out to, you know, I mean, we may see that, um, that uh, that you know, supposedly ironclad separation, you know, becoming in- increasingly um, porous. And um, it'll be really interesting to-, to kind of track how this winds up, um, you know, playing out in, th- in that realm as well.
0: Yeah, and that ironclad separation of a different kind between public relations and, on the one hand, and advertising and, and marketing on the other, um, is also, for very similar reasons, uh, under assault, as you talk about um, in, in the book quite a lot. And, yeah. I mean, the practice of influencing journalism has usually been the province of PR, but you come yeah. away from reading your book... With the conclusion that there there isn't anything fundamental anymore, if there ever was, that Mm. separates public relations from at least this kind of guerrilla marketing
1: yeah absolutely and that 's something we 're seeing um, with uh, sort of mergers you know in the ad industry and also um, you know the, the more kind of um, social media and, and um, you know, social media strategy becomes a central part of what um, brands are trying to do, the more they 're leaning on um, PR firms and, and PR agencies um, you know within their various you know marketing holdings conglomerates to be able to um, to reach out in those capacities um, so it 's a really interesting thing.
0: Uh, to follow Yeah, and it really is almost like the, you know, you hearken back to Ebert Bernays, but his sort of fundamental innovation, if that's the right word, that, you know, third-party credibility is the key to um, getting a message successfully delivered and accepted. And, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, lots of these different techniques, aren't they? They're kind of drawing on third-party credibility, whether that be sort of hipster authenticity or the amateur or... Yeah uh, what have you. So, well, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned this issue around journalism. Uh, Are you, uh, working on a journalism, uh, slash guerrilla marketing project next or what what, what is it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. In a manner of speaking. Um, so, uh, I had the the good fortune, um, just this past fall to have a, um, a research leave from teaching and, um, I wound up, um, pursuing a, a new project, um, that, uh, tracks, pretty closely to some of the same themes and questions um, that I look at in the book. Um, but instead of locating it in sort of brands and consumer culture, I look at it um, in the world of political marketing and political campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whereas the, the book is sort of based upon, uh, you know, these uh, you know, 45 or 50 interviews that I did with um, brand managers and creative directors um, who are using these strategies and dealing with these technologies to, to sell us goods, um, I've just done about 40 or so interviews with um, campaign managers and um, political advertising creatives and um, sort of, um, you know, political digital strategies, specialists, uh, folks of that, you know, press secretaries, folks of that uh, sort. Um, again, asking a lot of these sort of same questions about how does technology change what you do? Um, how are you thinking about, um, you know, how are you thinking about things like branding in the context of politics? Um, and it was a really sort of fruitful, uh, research period. Uh, I've got a, a whole, uh, a whole stack of <laughs> interviews that I'm sort of, uh, working through and, and trying to sort of identify some of the main themes. Uh, but yeah, basically the kind of next, next project, um, tries to, to sort of build on this momentum uh, but locating it sort of more in the world of um, politics and it, it was you know a good a good a good moment in the fall with the election to be able to um, to sort of chart some of these uh, these threads as they as they showed up in um, in various campaigns that we saw well
0: it sounds really interesting and you know I imagine you had some experiences of deja vu listening to the political operatives talk about the audience and so on I mean it must have uh, eerily mimicked some of the um, Cultural marketers that you talk to in it the, in did this book. yeah
1: it, it did yeah yeah
0: well great I mean uh, best of luck with that and thank you again for taking the time to talk to me and congratulations on what is a truly superb book
1: oh, thanks very much Jeff I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk about it today and uh, and I appreciate all the kind of words
0: you've been listening to new books and communications thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.